because we live in a culture that doesn't see the importance of church anymore. Actually, I was handed a book last week, and I've been reading it. It says, Why hate men hate going to church? And it's an interesting book because it says men aren't going to church anymore. They're starting to leave in droves. And so all you have left used to be almost 50-50, 50% men, 50% women in the 40s and 50s. Now it's up to about 65% women, 35 men, and, and just in churches across the line. And this church gives reasons why, or this book gives reasons why men hate church. Then I read an article this week, I have it on here, why millennials hate church. <laughs> why the millennial? Here's some of the things it says. Only 2 in 10 Americans under 30 believe attending church is important or worthwhile. It says 59% of millennials, these are people 22 to 35, 59%, so let's say 60, who were raised in church have dropped out. It says um, 35% of millennials have an anti-church stance. And I read this other article right afterwards at this... Uh, it's by the Hartford Institute of Religious Research says that 20%, less than 20% of Americans that say they are Christians go to church. That's a huge stat. I don't know if I buy that, but so tw less than 20% of people that say they're Christians go to church. And then and it goes on to say that uh, somewhere between four to 7,000 churches are closing a year. That's from the Southern Baptist Register. But one person said, I think it's even a little higher than that, maybe 8,000 to 10,000. And so what this is saying is there's this trend that church doesn't matter, that their church isn't important. And maybe, you know, belief's fine, but, you know, who, who needs church? But I think the Bible says the church is where faith, it's an incubator for faith. It's where it grows. It's where community happens. It's where we really grow in Christ through the, through the body of Christ. I think it's biblical. It's absolutely biblical because Jesus, Jesus says the gates of hell won't be able to overcome my church. It's important to him. If you go to Luke, I want you to, we're in our next section. Jesus says something. Last week, if you remember, we talked a lot about his return. Last week was really talking about the kingdom and how the kingdom is already, meaning by faith the kingdom enters your life, but not yet. His return is going to come, and when it comes, you'll know it, but it's not yet here. So he's piggybacking off that, and we jump into Luke chapter 18 off of that sentiment. And I want you to look at verse 8. Jesus is going to ask the question. He says, Luke 18, 8. I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily, and you'll understand that in a minute. But I want you to look at the second part. He says, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? So last week we said when Jesus comes, it's going to be noticeable, and man, it's going to be bad for some. And now Jesus is saying when he does come, will there be that many people that really believe anymore? Will he find faith on earth? If we look at statistics, it doesn't look like it. Men hate going to church. Millennials hate going to church. Can you equate faith with church? I think you can. I think it's really important. So what does he mean by faith? And what does it mean, will he find faithful people? That's what we're going to talk about today. He's going to give us two stories. 
two stories of prayer, basically, what prayer is like. But I would say even, even deeper than that, prayer is the most obvious sign that you have faith. If you really have faith, you will pray. Because prayer, if God really exists, the way I look at it, if God really exists, he's all-powerful, he knows everything, he can do anything, then prayer is the, it's the most logical thing for faithful people to do. If he doesn't exist, prayer is the foolish, most foolish thing for people to do. And so what he's going to do is give two stories of prayer. So look at 18 verse 1. Verse 1 says, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. And this is in relation to when is he going to come back? Don't lose heart. Don't give up. Life might be hard. You might be, be seemingly treated unfair, but don't lose heart. And so he gives this first parable on faith. And he says, in a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. This is a way of Jesus saying this guy's a fool, an abject fool. He doesn't fear God because fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, so he doesn't fear God and he doesn't fear man. He's kind of a cold, calloused fool. He's a hard judge. Probably one of those guys that is sick of working, sick of all the traffic cases. He just wanna, don't want to hear another one. Just get out of my court. That's this guy. Verse 3. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice. She probably talked just like that. Give me justice to get my adversary. So this old lady comes into the courtroom and she wants justice. Possibly somebody owes her money. Maybe somebody's doing something wrong to her. Maybe it's some vandals vandalizing her house, stealing from her. Whatever it is, she wants this judge to go to bat for her. For a while, verse 4 says, for a while he refused because he's a hard man. But afterwards he said to himself, oh, I, ne I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. It's interesting, the Greek is the idea of keep boxing my ears, keep hitting me. Did you ever meet those ladies that, those old ladies just hit you? I had a grandma like that. Shape up. This is kind of what he's saying is that lady keeps coming in. She's mad at me and she keeps, she won't leave me alone. So he gives her justice. Verse 6, the Lord says, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Okay, so, this first story is a picture of faithful prayer. But its perspective is how you view God. We're going to get another story of how you, you view self. So, I'm going to put it like this. Faithful, here, go to the next slide. Faith is found, so Jesus said, will faith be found? Okay, here is where faith is found. If you are wondering if you have faith, this is going to give two ways to tell if you have faith based on this parable. Faith is found where God is, number one, desperately needed. This lady needed answers. She kept coming, and she kept coming, and she kept, I want justice. 
give me justice. This lady needed help. She is desperate. One writer said she was astonishingly, astonishingly persistent in her requests. Are you with God? Have you ever reached the point when you have been so desperate for God that you keep praying and praying and praying? We rarely do in America because we take care of our own business. But faith sees God as my only answer in life. We try to figure out life without ever going to God. As they say, God is always the last resort. A faithful person sees God as the first answer. He's the first one I go to. He's the one I trust the most. Second thing we learn from this is if this judge came to the lady's rescue, here's the argument. If this judge came to the lady's rescue, when you pray, don't you think God will come to yours? It's what's called a arguing from lesser, this no good, rotten guy who is, doesn't care about God, doesn't care about ladies. You know what? If you bug him enough, he'll have compassion and he'll take care of you. Don't you think God's a lot better than that guy? And so when you call out to him, don't you think he'll answer? See, so this, this, this idea, so faith is found where God is desperately needed, but also, full, go ahead to the next one, where he's trusted completely, fully trusted. So faith is a matter of how you see God. How do you see him? Is he the source of your answers? And is he good? Do you trust him? To me, that song we sang, faith's most important question is this. Is God really good? Is he? So when life's bad and you keep praying for something, is it because God doesn't answer because he doesn't like you? Is that it? Or can you trust him enough that he's working things out? Remember I was talking, Rhonda, with Ken about this. People's perspective on how God works. And he said, he said, our perspective is like he was talking about when you would strap your kids in the back seat. You know, you put them in the baby seats and they kind of, they're sitting in that baby seat looking backwards and they don't, why am I sitting in this seat with a seatbelt? And they cry and they whine, they want out of that seatbelt. You as a parent know it's for their good. Even though they don't understand it, they don't know how long their ride is. The reason why they're strapped in there is because the parent's thinking of their good. But in the little baby's mind, they are strapped in and this life stinks and my mom and dad hate me. No, they don't. They love you. We pray like that. When things don't go our way, when circumstances seem terrible, I think we think, he just doesn't like me. No, he's good. How do I know he's good? You have to, to me, I think there's three what I would say is three markers that have been given to me that convince me that God is good. Number one is scripture. I want to show you Isaiah 53. I'll tell you what. If you've never read Isaiah 53, I had the incredible privilege of going through this passage with somebody this week for the very first, he never read this before. He's a new, he's a new believer. And I said, hey, have you ever seen the gospel in the Old Testament? He goes, well, what do you mean? Well, you know the Old Testament talks all about Jesus? No, what do you mean? Have you ever read Isaiah 53? He said, no, I never heard of it. I said, can I walk through it with you? 
And see, here's the problem with Christians who've been a Christian a while. We assume people read these things and know it. But they don't. And then we assume it's sort of what's it's sort of like, have you ever read a book and ah, I read that book? I don't need to read it again. But you go back to it 15 years later, and it's like you've never read the book before. I think that's what we do with the Bible. I know Isaiah 53. Do you really listen to it? Listen to what Scripture says. And mind you, this was written 700 years before Jesus ever came to earth. Listen, verse 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the Lord, the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty we should look in him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected of men. I asked the guy, what does this mean, and who is this talking about? He had no beauty that we should look on him, and he was despised and rejected. What does that mean? He said, well, you just said this is talking about Jesus, and you're telling me Jesus was despised and rejected? I thought people loved him. When was Jesus despised and rejected? When he went to the cross, he was beat, spit on, mocked, stripped for us. Keep reading. And because he was beat so much, he had no he was disfigured, disformed, ugly. And it was a picture of our sin. And so it goes on, he was a man of sorrow, he's acquainted with grief as one from whom men hid their faces, he's despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely, he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. The question, here's a question in verse 4, who smote him? Smote means being beat on. Who beat him? Well, if I read it rightly, it says he was beaten by God. Why would God beat his son? Would you ever just beat your son? Why would God beat his son for you? Wow. Keep reading. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was crushed. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we were healed. What does that mean? I asked, asked this guy, what does it mean with his stripes we were healed? I don't know. Have you ever heard of the cat of nine tails? where the Roman soldier would have this whip, and the end of the whip would be steel shards or bone shards, and as they whipped the back, they'd pull out flesh and it looked like stripes on the back, and they were 39 whips plus one. Jesus endured that, and so his stripes were so I would be healed? This is how I know God is good, because he did that for me. Right here in Scripture. Verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Here's the question for you. Why is he called a lamb? I asked the guy, why is he called a lamb? Because you remember when he appeared, John the Baptist said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God. Why would he say that? Because in the Old Testament, if I sinned and I was guilty, I would bring a little white lamb up, spotless white lamb, up to the priest. 
I would put my hand on the head of the lamb, and the priest would slice its throat. Why? Because this little white lamb is spotless. It's without blemish. I am a sinner. And when I put my hand on that lamb, it's a gesture that my sin is transferred to that lamb, and that lamb's spotlessness is transferred to me. It's called atonement. And when that neck vein is severed, he died in my place. Why do you think Jesus is called the Lamb of God? His righteousness was given to me, and my sin was on him on the cross. He died in my place. You tell me God's not good? He's so good. Scripture confirms it. History proves it. Talk to any historian, Jesus really lived. He really lived. If you don't believe it, read 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Jesus died and rose again, and over 500 people at the time that that happened saw it. When that book was written, most of those people were still alive. If that didn't happen, they could say, that's a, that's a myth. It's historical. So number one, it's scriptural. Number two, it's historical. But number three, you know how I know God's good? My gut. The spirit inside me confirms it. I just know it. When your room is quiet, when your media is turned off, your TV's off, and nobody's around, is God your friend or not? I know he's on my side. My gut confirms it. That's where faith starts. I had a professor in college that said, true faith, true faith is the point where God says to you, I want you to do something that God, will, God can give you a command, even though it seems like he's asking you to do something that makes no sense. But you know if you do it, good will come from it. That's true faith. It's true faith when you love your wife, even though she's driving you crazy, but it says love your wife as Christ loves the church. I'm supposed to love this woman? Yeah. True faith is when your husband drives you crazy and he makes decisions you don't like, but you're supposed to respect him. Is God good? So faith is found where you view God as good. Second place faith is found is how you view yourself. This is the next parable. This is a heavy parable. This is true faith is people who are found with faith view themselves in a certain way. And here it is in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So this, again, is about prayer. Two men went up to the temple to pray. So they went to the main temple. This would be the idea is they went to Jerusalem. They went before where the priests are. They went to pray. The people were a Pharisee and the tax collector. So what this is, is this is showing us two diametrically different people. One is from the upper class of society, the Pharisee. He's upper class. And one is a guy from the other side of the tracks, the tax collector. It's funny, I was talking to Derek this week, and 
we had some, we were just talking about the arcade. We had an arcade in our town where people would go to play like Pac-Man and Asteroids. Bill, remember Asteroids? Caterpillar. Did you ever play Caterpillar? Centipede, that's it. I was just seeing Bill. I knew Bill was a nerd. I knew it. That's why I asked. But Arc Arcade, for some reason, it was really weird. Is right in the center of town, and everybody that lived north of the arcade was upper class in our town. Everybody who lived south lived by the tracks, and they were some bad dudes. So in the arcade, you'd usually have fights and all kind of stuff over the who got to use Pac-Man, you know? It's crazy. But the Pharisee, he lived north of the arcade, and tax collector lived south, kind of lower class. That's what's going on. And so this story is going to contrast how both groups see themselves. So here's how it goes. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this. God, I thank you. He probably said it like this. I thank thee. I am not like other men, extortioners just the adulterers or even like this tax collector I fast twice a week I give tithes of all that I get but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven but he beat his breast saying God be merciful to me a sinner I tell you this man meaning the tax collector, this man went down to his house justified. Justified means right in the eyes of God. Rather than the other, for everyone who exalts, everyone who exalts himself, everyone who thinks they're better, everyone who views himself superior, they're going to be humiliated, humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So what you could say, first of all, faith is found where self is number one, and I'm going to say it in the negative, not delusional. It's not, when, you're, when you're not delusional about yourself, the Pharisee was delusional. Delusional means when you think things about yourself that just aren't true. You're living in a dream. The Pharisee thought he was good for two reasons, because he worked hard to please God. He fasted twice a week. He gave tithes. He's a good guy. And the reason why he's good is because he compares. He's better than the tax collector. I am not like this guy from the railroad tracks. It's rotten, no good tax collector. I want you to notice, look at his language. Watch how many times he says, I. Thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortions, unjust, or like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I, I get. Five times in one verse, I is mentioned. He's proud of himself. He's superior. Have you ever met somebody that can't stop talking about themselves? He's also very comparative. He doesn't see his flaws at all. He only sees the tax collector's flaws. It's funny, sometimes even when you do marital counseling, you'll have one side saying, yeah, I know I make mistakes, but you know what she does? 
Yeah, I know I've made some mistakes, but everybody else out there, it's all their fault. It's self-justification. Delusional says, I, I'm really good. No, there's only one that's good. Second thing we can say about a person that really is true to found faith is they are totally, totally, means their whole life, depending on God's mercy. They're totally dependent. They realize that in myself, in myself, I have nothing. In myself. I have nothing to prove. I have nothing to really say that I'm superior or better. I have nothing really that pleases God in the sense of justifying myself, being made right, because I'm a sinner, and I know that. And it's not delusional. Humility sees yourself as you really are. I was talking with somebody about funerals, a lot of funerals. And it wasn't about Murray's, but another one that I'm going to have to do this week. And the guy asked me, he says, how do you, how do you talk about somebody you're not sure that makes it? And I said, I'll tell you how a lot of pastors do is they try to find good things to prove they're in. They try to prove, he was a good dad. He was nice. And this guy said, I, I went to a funeral about, and the reason why the guy should get in, because he told good jokes. So we're always looking for reasons to justify why we deserve to get into heaven. The truth of the matter is, there is nothing, nothing in of ourselves that we should ever deserve to walk past the pearly gates where it's holiness all, all the time. It's perfect, and I haven't been perfect, and I don't deserve that. So why do I get in? Because God promised me something. He said, if you believe in this person that was led like a lamb to the slaughter, who died for you, remember, his righteousness is given to you. So when he died on the cross, God saw him as you, and now he sees you as him by faith. The reason you make it into heaven is because you believe the gospel. It's not because you're good. Murray is not going to heaven because he served at this church for 25 years. Murray is not going to heaven because his son cried tears when he died. And he took him fishing. And he took him fishing a lot. That's not why he's going to heaven. How many people you know can fish? Like people think, people think it's really cool that you can go fishing. So that's why you get to go to heaven because, man, we had campfires together. That does not get you into heaven. What gets you into heaven is faith. And the reason I say this is because people are so deluded about themselves. Here's an interesting question. And I, I know you're saying, Chris, man, you're kind of harsh about these things. You're kind of mean to people. Ah, eternity's closer than you think. Just be sure. And that, that goes to this next question. It's a question of confidence. Is confidence a sign that you're saved. See, because if you look at verse 8, look at what it says, or verse 9, look what it says. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In the NIV, it says, he told this parable about people who have confidence in themselves. 
trusted in themselves or confidence. People who think they're righteous. So my question is, because someone is sure of their salvation, are, are they surely saved? Because there's some churches that say, man, once you're saved, don't doubt it, don't doubt it. How do you know? Because you have it written in a book somewhere? How do you know? Because uh, you had a burning in the bosom? I felt it. Because you saw some miracles happen? Is that why you're going to heaven? In this passage, the Pharisee was given as the example a man who trusted in his own righteousness. In other words, he was a person that looked good on the outside, and because he looked good on the outside, he thought he had the spirit on the inside. To me, it's sort of like a, if you ever see a nice wedding candle, the nice wedding candle, because the couple doesn't want to mess it up, they'd never put a match on it because it looks so nice. That's sort of like this Pharisee. He looks so nice, but he's got no light in him. Here's what I would say. I was doing some reading on this. Is confidence a sure sign you're saved? I would say no for four reasons. Number one, there's nothing we can ever be sure about, 100% sure about, except, of course, as they say, death and what else? Taxes. And you know that, John. That is for sure. But we can't be 100% sure about anything. In California, they have this Oroville Dam. Oh, it's got a few cracks, but it will be all right. And, you know, it never rains in California. Oh, yeah? <laughs> it's bad right now. That Orville Dam, they're, it's sustaining. If you've read about it, it's, this, it's on the bottom of the, I think it's on the bottom of Sequoia National Forest. And it, it's a funnel. It's got a big lake. And this dam has been chipping away, and now a whole highway has been washed out. And if this thing unloads its water, they have no way to get out. They said 200,000 people will need to be evacuated, and they don't have a way to do it. Because they were pretty sure it wouldn't rain like that, but it's raining like crazy. The second reason, and this is interesting, this is from Jonathan Edwards. He says, The devil does not assault the hope of the lost as he does the hope of the true saint. Think about it. The devil likes it when people rest in a bed of false hope. He likes it when you think you're saved when you're not. So why would he mess with you thinking you are, uh-oh, you might be standing on slippery ground. He won't do that for you. He will make you feel confident in your salvation when you aren't truly saved. But he loves to go after people who are saved, trying to get them to doubt. Loves it. So if you have feelings of doubt, it should be normal. I think it's rather healthy, personally. You'll see that in the fourth reason. Here's the third reason why I think sometimes questioning your salvation is sort of good because the closer you get to God, the more he exposes who you really are. I think salvation is like peeling an onion. He will save you and you know you're saved, but then he's like, okay, now that I got you, let me show you a little bit about what's inside. And you start peeling and you start, ah, uh, ah. Uh. The closer I get to God, the worse I know I really am. We have this thing that's called the perfection of the saint. We can actually get better and better. Oh, boy, be careful with that. Some of the holiest men in the Bible, Isaiah, Job, 
John the Apostle. When they got to see God face to face, they fell on the ground as if they were going to die. Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips, living in a, a nation of people with unclean lips, for I have seen the Holy One. People who really see God, there's a new humility that overcomes them like crazy, and they question. And then 2 Corinthians, look at 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Second Corinthians 13, 5 says, and he's writing to the Corinthians, the second book, Corinthians, he calls them brethren, and he says, examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. How do you, what does that mean? Well, he goes on in verse 8, he says, For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. The idea is that when the Spirit of God's in you and the truth is given to you, you recognize it, you receive it. And test yourself. If you don't know, if you're not familiar, if you don't receive truth well, ooh, be careful. Because the Spirit of God, when he's in you, he anoints you with an understanding of truth. He just does. So that's my question of confidence. So if we're to wrap these two stories of prayer up, we shouldn't be confident is what I hear you saying. We need to be like that second guy and beat our breasts and be a, admit our need. We need to be desperate. Now I know why men don't like the church. You're telling me to be wimpy. Seems like it's only for children. Real faith. As Karl Marx said, it's an opium for the Weak masses of people keeps them happy. Is faith childish? This is where Jesus gives us one more little story, verse 15 to 17. Jesus says, now there were, uh, verse 15 in Luke 18, now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to himself, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So what's happening is here's Jesus walking with the disciples, and people start bringing their kids to him. Little children come up to him. And the disciples said, Get them away. Get those kids out of here. I have to tell you, this culture at the time did not esteem children like we esteem our children. Actually, if you've ever gone to a second or third world country, you should see how they treat children sometimes. In India, where there's karma, and karma is the idea that your past life, you must have done something bad, so that's why bad things are happening. You're paying it off. In India, where there's karma, they will break some kid's arms so they can beg better. They do not treat their kids well. If you ever go, like I can remember going over to Tijuana. When I, when I came over to Tijuana, here's all these kids on the street side singing me La Bamba, trying to get money from me. It says their parents just, there's not the same kind of love. Like in our, You go to our culture, a kid plays third grade t-ball, 17 relatives show up. We love our kids. We do. We just do. It's good. That's good we love our kids. Jesus confirms it. 
But he's also using these kids as an example of faith. And my question is, do you have to be a little kid to be a believer? That's kind of wimpy. Jesus is welcoming children. So is true faith childish? Yes. It's for the lowly. Faith is for lowly people. Christianity is not just for brilliant, important, perfect, law-abiding people. It's for the lowly. It's not a religion of competition. It's not a religion for the best dressed, the slickest speakers. It's not for rich churches. It's for needy, small people like me. But you could also say it's not childish at all for this reason. It's not childish whatsoever. Admitting dependence may be, admitting that you are a dependent person may be the most mature thing you could ever do. One person said that Jesus was the most dependent person who ever lived. And you can't tell me Jesus wasn't mature. What do you mean that Jesus was the most dependent person that ever lived? In John 5.19, he said the Son can do nothing on his own. But he only does what he sees his Father doing. The Son can do nothing of his own. And then the Son says to us, John 15, 5, without me, you can do nothing. Wow. So what he's really saying, you really want to be mature? Admit your need and your dependence. And it might not go well with this book, Why Men Hate Going to Church, because men like to rev their cars and swing their hammers. But is that what he's, he's not talking about physical strength. He's talking about how I really see myself. The truth of the matter is, manliness is not macho-ness, it's meekness. In fact, the most mature person was meek. What do I mean by meek? Meek means when you are strong, but you hold back that strength for the, for the goodness of everybody. My dad was one of the strongest people I ever knew, but in our home, I felt free because he wouldn't just go on angry tirades. I just, I just end with this. I went to go visit Murray two months ago. Ernie and I went to go visit Murray. And Arnie will agree with this story. Here's Murray Potts. Did you guys know Murray Potts used to run arm wrestling tournaments at our church? We used to go to the other gym. He used to get these guys called the Conquerors, and Murray would host an arm wrestling tournament. All the guys from the Kent City Lounge would show up for this arm. Josh, were you, do you remember that? All these guys from the Kent City Lounge would show up. You know, they'd be smoking outside the church, and Murray said, ah, that's the guy's. Murray used to win all these arm wrestling tournaments, and the only places they have them are at bars, so Murray's used to it. He once won an arm wrestling tournament and got Lou Ferrigno's signature. Mike, he got the Incredible Hulk signature, Murray Pose. Needless to say, Murray was a pretty strong dude. Actually, his brother Kelly was saying he once tried to arm wrestle him. Murray said, you can use both hands, and Murray still beat him. Murray's tough. He just was tough. But Arnie and I saw him two months ago. And his illness had him to such a degree, he couldn't lift his arm, he couldn't move his leg, he could barely talk. But he said, you know what, I was reading today in Hebrew chapter 12. 
and it says how God disciplines those he loves. I needed this. Murray, you can't move. Do you remember that, Arnie? I couldn't believe that. He said, if God gets me out of this bed, I don't know if he is or not, but I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to be a different person. I'm going to tell more people. But he said, God's disciplining me. So here's a guy who I would never try to arm wrestle, has no strength in his arm. And he thanked God for that. That's meekness. Because he understands what God is trying to do on your inside is so much more important than who you are on the outside. And he's reaping the benefits of it right now. So the question for you is, it's really simple. Is God good? Do you need him? Let's pray. Jared, we'll close this in a song. Lord, we, uh, you give us living stories of human beings that you put in our midst to learn lessons from. Help us not to just mildly pass by that. Thank you for the lessons we learned from Murray. They're just like scriptures. Jesus uses lives of people to teach us lessons. And the two people he taught us, we need to be more like that widow who comes a hammering and knocking and praying. Help us to be more dependent on you. And then he gives us the example of the tax collector who's not comparing himself with anybody else. But he realizes before you he's needy. Help us, Lord, to be like children who admit our need and wait patiently for you to, to save. Thank you, Jesus, for dying on the cross. Thank you for taking our sin so that we can be the righteousness of God. And it's in your name we pray.